And since I've uh, been talking around mindfulness of breathing, touching into that, um, particularly about the what I call the movement of energy in breathing, I thought I would try to amplify that and explain that, uh, particularly in terms of what the Buddha did teach and what he didn't teach. And, uh, I'm pretty familiar with much of the suttas, including several specific teachings on mindfulness of breathing. There's certain uh, things he did not teach, which may seem surprising. He he didn't teach you to focus on your nostrils or your breath or any particular point of the body, which may seem... Uh, well, that's quite nowhere in the entire Sutta Pitika does he ever mention that. He does talk about mindfulness of breathing quite a lot. It's not, you know, so why did he, why did he not say that? And he also didn't talk about concentrating on the breathing or concentrating on the breath, which you might find surprising. <laughs> but he, when he did teach it he talked about uh, being mindful of breathing in and out sensing the, the long the duration of it the uh, when it comes short he talked about being sensitive to the entire body when breathing in and breathing out he talked about calming something called Kaya Sankara, Kaya's body. And sankara, not an easy word to translate, it means something like uh, 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 conditioning force. That's why it's not easy to translate. You see it often translated as formations, which doesn't give you much of an idea what this is. And when, it, when it's explained in the scriptures, it says, Kaya Sankara is breathing in and breathing out. So you just go around in a circle. <laughs> but if you... Uh, and this is soothing and calming this. Uh, this, whatever it is. And he talks about experiencing qualities of... Uh, of something called rapture. He's understood to be a, a bright, buoyant, emotional, emotive effect that actually has a bodily effect to it and it feels kind of bright and tingly and then a, something called sukha which is implied a sense of ease and comfort and then calming uh, noticing the citta sankara so this word again, citta means mind or heart and then steadying, soothing the citta sankara and all the time, every time he gives one of his instructions, he says one does this while breathing in and breathing out. So somehow one is aware of breathing in and breathing out while we're doing all this other stuff at the same time. While we're dealing with things of the mind, as well as things of the body. And then he goes on and says, when you are sensitive to chitta, sensitive to mind, sensitive to heart, one breathes in and breathes out, um, 
gladdening, thoroughly delighting, brightening the heart, one breathes in and breathes out, steadying, one breathes in and breathes out, and releasing, one breathes in and breathes out. And then he goes into another phase which is to do with witnessing, witnessing qualities of changeability, witnessing qualities where the flaring of passion subsides, witnessing that subsiding of of, of passion, raga, and then contemplating or witnessing things subsiding and ceasing and witnessing the experience of relinquishment and you may think, well, this is not happening in my nose, is it? (laughs) So what is going on here? Now, uh, we go to uh, Indian culture and you you understand just a smattering of Pali and Sanskrit, which I do, you'll find, for example, the word the word mindfulness of breathing is anapanasati. Sati means mindfulness, whatever that is. Um, ana means in out, and pana is breathing. When we take the five precepts, we see it says panati pata, refrain from destroying panas. <laughs> yeah. If you do any. Um, um, uh, pranayama it's a yogic practice you deal with prana which is the same word Sanskrit version of the same word and you recognize this is to do with the particular energy qualities that are associated with breathing because you can do pranayama you have to move energy around your body using prana so prana really associates with the life force so we don't destroy creatures that have life force in them, that are breathing in and breathing out. Whether it's a fish, which clearly doesn't have lungs, whether it's an ant, which doesn't have lungs. So they don't, they're not breathing out. They're a different process, but still energy is associated with respiration, is moving in and out of these creatures, keeping them alive. That's the distinction qualities it is with us. So this quality, this experience of... Uh, a life force associated with respiration moving in and out through, through a body, a kaya, whatever that is. <laughs> now, actually, there are different words for body, or can be translated for body, rupa, which means shape. Rupa means the thing we see with our eyes, we see a shape. Kaya refers to something that's more directly experienced. And when we are uh, tending to uh, um, this, through this first process, which is to do with um, the bodily experience of breathing out, <coughs> we're not looking at the body. So we're very much ex- this experience, the experience of body breathing, right? the direct experience of body breathing. Close your eyes. What do you look like? Go on. Yeah. Now, if you're not told to focus any particular point in your body, uh, are you breathing? Are you sure? What do you feel? 
How do you know it? Well, for a start, you feel it. And you feel kind of energy of shifting. You may certainly experience certain sensations. By and large, you experience a swelling and subsiding. Tissues moving. What moves them? Now, you may infer that the air does it, but you can't see air. You cannot watch a breath unless it's a frosty morning. I mean, you cannot see it. It's invisible. And particularly if you're seeing it, what, what do you experience? You experience an energy pushing through your body. Soft energy. Expanding. And strengthens as you breathe in. Seems to become more intense and strong. Subsides as you breathe out. So you might say, could this be what the Buddha is talking about? Um, yeah. And then we begin to consider, well, then, so we're talking about things like soothing and calming. This is associated with energy, isn't it? You, know, you can't calm a sensation, but you can calm the energy where you're agitated or peaceful. That's energy, isn't it? So calming, soothing energy. So this thoroughly sensitive to the entire body, that's a pretty wide focus of awareness. Holding it in one focus. So, by no means is this pinpoint attention, is it? But it's not you're not attentive, but to the whole body's entirety as it does this breathing in and out, what do you experience in terms of body? Now, if you go to a sensation, you can go to a particular location, right? sensation in my knee, my fingers, my ear or something. You go like that to a particular sensation. If you experience the whole body in one focus, what do you experience? You experience something that goes, you experience this energy, whether it's warm, whether it's rigid, whether it's supple, whether it's agitated. You experience the energetic effect. So that you can hold in one focus. The sense of something streaming, streaming through the body. Something streaming through a bodily experience, something streaming through that brightens it, strengthens it, agitates it, stirs it, it may be. And you can, when you experience your body in this energetic way, you feel it's perhaps it's quite disturbed. It could be tense, clogged, it could be stirring, it could be foggy. You need to do some work here. And what do we do? We breathe through that, you send this continuous steady current through that uns- unsteady bodily quality and it, it begins to soothe it. Just as if you're combing a tangled mane of a horse, or you're combing your own tangled mane. <laughs> you know, you're just sending something regularly through. A bodily a field of bodily energy and doing it steadily, 
coding. And this is then called, ah, this is what he means by soothing the Kaya Sankara, which means that conditioning force that we experience keeping our body alive. It fills and it, it does form our impression of the body. It's the life force flowing along, we could call it nerve, nerve endings or nervous energy or meridians or channels, but it's certainly something streaming through this. this, is, this all this stuff, you study it and soothe it by sending this regular signal through it. Just as if you were steadily stroking something. And because you're dealing with an energetic form, that steady signal running through it begins to soothe it. Provided that you do connect the two, provided you are bringing the two together. So we talk about breathing through the dullness, breathing through the tension. And this is clearly not about puffing air through it. It's about feeling that breath energy and where you feel tense or congested. You give attention there and you focus there and you sense how is your breathing, how is that energy of breathing happening here. And if it feels it's not moving through it, then you know you have to relax it, soften it, open it, widen it to allow energy to move through that. In this way, we begin to thoroughly soothe and steady the kaya sankara, bodily energy. This itself, these are all processes. That take time. Just as if you are uh, you know, soothing a, a frightened animal. You don't shout at it and shut up, you have to steadily soothe it and calm it. It gets agitated and soothe it and stroke it again. Yeah. Because you're dealing with something that's got energy in it. So it can, it can jump and start it and it can sink. So this means your intention has to be pretty steady with that. Yeah. Your, 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 your approach, your agency has to be pretty steady and calm and gentle and clear. You start getting upset about it, it's just going to stir it up. Start getting frustrated by it, that's not going to do any good. If you want to check out of it, you haven't dealt with it at all. Trying to just put a lid on it all doesn't do you any good. So this is why this teaching is actually has a significance to it that goes beyond doing, um, you know, what we might think, uh, breathing an ounce about. Because you're dealing with the fundamental substance of your existence. How you feel sick, why you get jumpy and nervy, why you get irritable, why you get... Because these energetic effects also affect what we call mind. Right. And so, as we recognize, if we look at the Sutta, then the Buddha talking about these, doing this process, is if you do this, you're able to do this, then what occurs 
are effects that are both somatic, if you're bright, but also they're emotional, if you're happy. So clearly at this point, body and mind are conjoined, they're not separate. And that's, that's the way it actually is. If your body is tense, your mind is tense. If your body is, is uh, disordered, your mind will be erratic. If your body is steady and soft and, and carefully cultivated, your mind feels strong and clean and not, not it's, 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 uh, has no rough edges to it. So this is how the body calms the mind or steadies the mind or comforts the mind or soothes the mind. The Kaya Sankara accesses our emotional energy and soothes it. We breathe through our irritation, we breathe through our hungers and cravings, we breathe through our doubt and agitation and restlessness, we breathe through our doubt, our endless thinking, and we calm the energy of that. Not by aversion, but through bringing this clean energy into it. So you don't have to shift from breathing in your nose to dealing with your mind. Because this is where the mind and body meet at the energetic level. I think this is something that probably we experience, but isn't necessarily uh, our kind of understanding we assume the body is like, well, there's meat and bones and tissues and stuff like that. And it's doing some interesting things like metabolizing and digesting and so on. So it's got some kind of process going on. His mind is this abstract thing, like a series of thoughts that are doing processing thoughts. That's mind, and it's totally separate from body. Mind and matter, completely separate. This was, the, of course, the uh, Western uh, philosophical tradition, Plato onwards, got a differentiated mind is an ideal realm of abstract notions and symbols, and body is a kind of, well, you know, fairly coarse animal thing. And ideally, you want to get out of that and go to the ideal level. And this is pretty standard in, in Western philosophy. It was also there in um, the time of the Buddha where the, the ascetic tradition said, well, you, what you want to do is try to subjugate the body altogether and sort of suppress it so you can go into this immaterial state. The mind will be liberated from the, this carnality of the body with its hungers and pains and twinges and cravings and all this kind of messy stuff. Uh, and so that that was their bent on it. What was so revolutionary about the Buddha? Really revolutionary, because he did, he could do all this stuff. And he said, "Yeah, you could. I can do it." And yeah, I come back to this again. You know, I come out of those immaterial states, and I'm back in this again. So what? It was a nice trip, but here it is. Back to this again. So his his revolution was say, well, maybe actually in this very body, if you penetrate it, there's another realm. 
which actually deals with the mind-body problem or the mind-body conundrum because this is where the mind and the body are not separate and it's called the fine material level fine material fine material is the phrase they use it's not the coarse materiality which we could see with our eyes or it's to do with sense contact yeah. you know quite distinctive it's got edges around it we can see it it's a lump it's an object there we call this the coarse material no offense men you know i'm just as coarse as you are <laughs> but it's like you know that's pretty coarse <laughs> well you definitely know it's distinct uh, and then the fine material it's just much more suffusive energy is it there or not it's there it's definitely tangible experiential but it doesn't have edges to it it's like like mist like cloud like like you know like warmth you can move through it and so actually at this level if you enter into that you can deal with a lot of the um, issues that are of an emotive nature such as anger such as irritation, such as craving and lust, such as passion and violence, such as sadness and grief, yeah? such as addiction, obsession, yeah? uh, such as brutality and domination, such as selfishness and holding on, and competition and you know you can deal with these issues which are very fundamental human disease that runs right across the human spectrum you know our, our, our brutality towards other creatures is staggering our brutality towards fellow humans is staggering. Nothing is as brutal as a human. You know, nothing seeks to dominate everything else like a human does. You know, nothing can be so selfish as a human. And you know, these are these are diseases because nothing could be so beautiful and grand and compassionate as a human. How come? Because there's a disease there. It's turning energy the wrong way. It's turning into into mine, me. Once it does this, I'm separate from everything else. What counts is my welfare. If that means I'm going to do you down. That's fine. Because I count and you don't. That's putting it very bluntly. But you know, at a certain point, that's that's what happens for people. I want that I'll take that for me I have an opinion I'm going to defeat your opinion I got this piece you're not having it that kind of stuff is what happens right? and passion gets aroused with that and we do violence with that as human beings men, women, any. What's happening? These distortions 
where this energy is used in a, a corrupting, malevolent, uh, uh, self-centered way. And it's, it's, it's not rationalized, it's an instinct that occurs. So to, to really understand that and be shocked by it is one thing. But then to deal with it, you've got to go right into the, the wiring you know, of, of the being. You go right into the wiring of it. And the wiring of it is energetic. When I feel the pulse of greed or the pulse of violence or the pulse of, of, of uh, holding on, you know. Just up, let's soup, let's soften that. You know? Whew, let's just turn that one down. Because this is doing me harm, it's going to do you harm. And, you know, we're starting a whole series of, of really difficult consequences. So that ability to, to manage this energetic thrust that these psychologies produce you know, is, is very, you know, well, I can't, over, I can't overstate the benefit of that because nothing else really works. You know, we have all kinds of laws. <laughs> People, you know, it's, it sort of curbs it a bit, but it doesn't deal with it. All kinds of prisons, you could lock people up, but that doesn't deal with it. All kinds of weapons, we could bomb each other to pieces, but that doesn't deal with it. There are all kinds of moralizing sermons we could quote to each other, that doesn't deal with it. You know? And Tobin is very nice that we love each other, the brotherhood of mankind, all people are equal, it's great we with political statements and you when the push comes to shove mine. <laughs> right? You know, democracy doesn't work, communism doesn't work. Because it they work at an ideal level, you're actually handling what makes us what what does this to people. It's really happening at an instinctive, uh, energetic level where we seize up and start grabbing, you know, to really see the the uh, the, the, the harm this is causing. You know? But then also to see that, that what it does to you, to what it does to oneself. You know? Oh, very nice. You know, we can say very brutal, nasty things. And then when you go right internally, you know, it's the energy is not good. And imagine none of us have really done the really intensely heavy things that, uh, that human beings are capable of, but people do. I know people, they, you know, they say it's the average person, but you know, you had a few <laughs> drinks or something, and somebody was a bit nasty, and there was a flash, and suddenly somebody got killed. That lost control. Okay, you're inside for 10, 15 years through something lit the lit the fire. Somebody pushed the button, and the reflex jumped out. Right? You know, the betrayals and so forth. Overwhelmed with passion, this energy rushing through. So. 
really kind of coming into this territory and learning to straighten it, clean it, so energy is not, you know, those, uh, uh, we're, we're aware of it. We can be aware of what's called <laughs> quite, it's rather innocuous expression, the chitta sankara, which means the way your mind moves. <laughs> yeah. And the way the mind moves can be pretty, pretty drastic. So, and how, you, so you start getting a, a good enough foundation of the essential medium, which is energetic in your body, and you're able to moderate, soothe, and you feel the benefit. Hey, this feels good. I feel comfortable with this. And this didn't cost anybody anything. Yeah? I didn't have to grab hold of anything. I just soothed and, and steadied. Because of this, one can enter, enter into this impulsive domain of the heart. You know, with its jumpiness and its fieriness and its grasping, it's just cool that and ease out the energy of that. Mm-hmm. Breathing in, breathing out. So you're really tackling the mind at an energetic level. This is what impulse is about. An impulse is what flashes out. Good, bad, distorted beautiful or just crazy and he goes on to say well you know if you are able to steady this you're going to find something uh, that you didn't really 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 know it's called chitta so it's through steadying and calming that the activities this turbulence this movement that we and that's steady, that's something, just a beautiful, pure sensitivity. It's awake, it's open, it's sensitive, it's uh, resonant. It's, but it's, it's, you know, once we've cleaned away these erratic energies, and you can gladden it, you can, a sense of just giving a lot of warmth. An encouragement to this potential in ourselves, our potential to be sensitive, and then steadying it and releasing it from these old habits, these old what I call ditches that we've dug, that have been dug, the old karma, the old tracks that the mind will run down. Witnessing, as we do in any of this, how everything that arises moves and shifts and changes. So what is there that we could hang on to? That we can be clung to since everything is in flow at an energetic level, nothing ever is still. Everything is a matter of pulse and movement and shift and change. The appearance of stability is a, a kind of a conjuring trick that the thinking mind does as it as it um, connects to the senses, it creates stability and because it does it so effortlessly. We don't even realise it is a trick. Because you say, you know, when I look around and I see this, this uh, shape here, and uh, it's the same shape, it's the same person 
who was there three minutes ago, even though she's actually moved her arm. Because my mind retains an impression and says those two impressions mean the same thing. The person who was sitting there with her arm down is the same as the person sitting with her arm up, which is good enough. I think she'd agree with that. <laughs> but actually, what she is is changing. But because I just keep taking photographs of each change and, and sticking them together, I create a sense of stability. Who is she? Is she the one who sits or the one who lies down or the one who moves? The one who yawns or the one who stretches? The one who eats or the one who drinks? The one who's happy? Which one is she? Oh, she's a kind of conundrum. She's a mixture of all of them. That's pretty fuzzy, isn't it? What stable entity is there? <laughs> we have a stable reference point which we're deciding this series of shapes and movements is, is the same being but actually that's just a mental conjuring trick it's really what we're looking at is an interpretation of changing phenomena bamboo mountain at 4 o'clock in the morning is different from bamboo mountain at 10 o'clock in the morning actually you know the light has changed visibility has changed you know, we say it's the same mountain because we interpret the two and put the two interpretations together that's that's the, that's the trick called perception actually the reality of it is my experience of bamboo mountain is always going to be subtly different sometimes I notice the color or the shape or the vegetation or the cloud or it will seem to be very large there's only a sky behind it, I'll be noticing a detail. Yeah, and all of these I will call Bamboo Mountain, and yet they're all different. And if you get right down to it, if you look at something steadily with your eyes, your eyes have to keep subtly moving in order to keep a clear impression, to keep tracking. If you focus, if you really make a big effort to hold your eyes steady, you'll notice that the visual object you're looking at will begin to pulse. <laughs> because that's consciousness you're experiencing. You don't experience an object. You experience a pulsation of consciousness. Yeah? You try it. You look at something, really hold your eyes very steady, and you notice it goes fuzzy, it shifts and changes, sometimes you notice a detail and then it is not you're not you're experiencing an experiencing consciousness which is a constantly vibrant pulsing thing. You cannot experience stability in that sense. So when we look at this on the microcosm and on the macrocosm, what's this holding on about? It's a security issue, isn't it? Now, if one is feeling comfortable in the flow and the fluidity of energy, you don't need to hold on to things because the, the, the security issues are resolved at this level. And real ontological, you know, fundamental security issues. So, 
this means that that passion for holding on declines. This is how the process goes. The passion for holding on, something we feel attracted to, we feel a certain sense of gratification is available in that thing. When things are a material thing, food, sex, whatever, sound, Mm, what are you actually going to get? What happens? You get a flush, a rush. Rushes through, stirred up, turbulence, finished. Right. <laughs> what was all that about? You know? It's a really nice meal, you're hungry, oh, this is great, 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 great. It's exciting, it's like, yes, it's good. Where did it go? Was it worth? Mm-hmm. You could have eaten the meal calmly, and you'd have had the same feeling. Your hunger would have ceased, and you could have done that without this extra addition of passion, which meant you're much more clear and aware of what you're eating. You didn't overeat. You ate just what was appropriate. You come out feeling much steadier. Wouldn't that be better? So this is the experience of. Dispassion, the, the fire energy is called, the impulse energy is called, and when the impulse energy is called, we're actually much more balanced and steady in what we're doing. This is, has very, all these have far reaching consequences, don't they? Ceasing, recognizing what well, certain tendencies begin to stop. The rush and grab tendency begins to stop. Yeah. Fear and greed tendency begins to pass away. The, uh, the notions about what you are, what you're not, also can begin to pass away. Any notion of what you are is what? What's that made of? Hmm? Thought, a memory, a uh, feeling. Um, a familiarity. There's that feeling again. There's that perception again. That's that mental habit again. All of those mental habits will calm down. Ceased. What if the act of continual self consciousness of referring to yourself, what if that particular energy calmed down? So you no longer am I this, am I that, should I be this, should I do it? What if that stopped? That self definition that occurs when the mind is constantly thinking and referring and comparing and contrasting, what if that energy soothed out? Who would you be? Would you not exist? Not quite. You'd be, you'd be present, you'd be aware, you'd be clear. But this separate self-conscious self impression would have ceased. And that would be really <laughs> take a, a huge burden off your mind. The need to be this, the need to be that. 
the idea of what other people think of you, the way you criticize yourself, your memories and so forth. What if all that dissolved? Would you be dead? I don't think so. Would you be oblivious? I don't think so. Not bright, free, clear, available to act in a balanced and sensitive way. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Relinquishment refers to just this ability to let go of the idea of being anything. You don't need an idea of being something because here we are, here it is. So it's non conceiving, non construction. These are, of course, very you know, mind boggling, perhaps, notions. And the Buddha is saying you can do this breathing in and breathing out. <laughs> because all of these quite complex psychologies and reflex actions and things that seem to be so solid and knitted in are really sustained by particular energetic patterns where the mind keeps going to the same channel again and again. Energy rushes back into that doubt formation, that track. It starts, am I this, am I that, should I this, should I that? Or the energy goes into this holding on quality. I am this, I'm not that, I want this, I must be that. So referring to and soothing, steadying these energetic qualities, this brightness is revealed, chitta, awake, aware, and the Buddha certainly, for many people would say, well there's somebody there certainly a, you know, a large shape there and he seemed to have all his marbles he was very adroit, skillful um, wise uh, full of eloquence he was not numbed out eloquent, witty perceptive, instructive full of many varieties of language a master of language and rhetoric he could just come out spontaneously with poetic statements reel them out someone of great authority of resilience he lived 50 years on the road sleeping on the ground living on alms food there was something there So, if we take this as our, our model, we're saying, well, the, the Buddha, whatever it was, that arrived through doing this breathing stuff, <laughs> because this was, his, this was his practice, his main practice. So, just look at that. Well, you know, definitely, all the faculties are there, all the qualities are there, perhaps enhanced. Yeah, clarity, intelligence. Humor, uh, firmness, resolve, resilience, patience, compassion, they're all there. What is in there? Holding on. You know, what in a nutshell? Greed isn't there. Hatred isn't there. Power isn't domination isn't there. Regret isn't there. Fear isn't there. Uh, 
So, you know, these seeming psychological issues, which are, certainly as they manifest, they become psychological issues, have an energetic foundation. So when we're dealing with the energetic foundation, those psychologies don't have the food to keep going because we don't really like that rushing up energy of impulse. We find that grabbing on to be rather distasteful. And actually we feel much happier with the sense of being soft and soothing and the ability to flow. And quietly, truly appreciate quietly. Not as a stifling, but as a deep, deep, sensitive, wonderful realm of depth and penetration and profundity with sorts of magical qualities in it. And so this is, we call this samadhi, or the mind is collected. So in this, this is where this word, which is translated as concentration, comes in. As I said, the Buddha, as far as I can see and please if you look and, and find some reference I'll be willing to see it I don't see him ever saying concentrate on anything let alone the breathing of course he didn't use English but what he does say you know having uh, considered this and seen the, 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 the pointlessness of this kind of behaviour and having seen my mind doing this that and the other and seeing this is not going anywhere uh, and since the regret of doing that and to give up that, then my mind began to steady and settle and quieten and compose itself. And he uses the word samadhiati, it's settled. So we're talking about a certain settling of heart, settling of energy. We don't want to go down those channels anymore. That's not concentrating on a thing, that's the mind gathering into itself. I'm not running down there. I'm not running down there. I'm not spinning out there. I'm not fighting with that. Therefore it settles. He said, now with this settled mind, with this quality of settledness, I directed it towards this. My main my mind became my mind became ekagata. My mind became one pointed, I had one intention in mind, which was the steady simplify and penetrate the experience. So this is his one-pointedness, and not a particular physical point, but a one-pointedness of intention, to have a sense of this is what I really want to do. And then resolve was born, commitment was born, and energy aroused. With this energy I sustained mindfulness. So in this, interesting enough, we see in this, this sense that the samadhi process almost begins prior to mindfulness. And it's deepened through mindfulness because the quality of mindfulness is, very simply speaking, to bear something in mind, to stay on topic. And you may have gone, uh, it can be used uh, in cases, you're mindful of a sensation, that's fair enough. But this is a very limited use of the term. When the suttas describe mindfulness, it says, 
one is mindful, one remembers the meanings of the teachings given long ago. Therefore one is mindful. You remember the meaning of teachings given long ago. That's the definition of, mind, of a person who's mindful. What? What does it mean? It means certain things have occurred. One of the criminal things that occurs, I'm referring to, that I haven't described, I haven't used the word, is careful attention or deep attention. Uh, it's called the Pali word is yoni so manasikara. Manasikara means attention. Yoni so means getting to the source. Hmm? Now this is the kind of attention. It isn't just about pointing your mind on an object. It means getting the meaning of it. What's that about? What how does this affect me? How does this does it stir me? Does it calm me? If I see that. Is that useful or not useful? If I direct my attention towards that, is that helpful or not? Is it just a waste of time? If I look at that with a greedy mind, what's the result? Hmm. If I look at it with a covetous mind, what's the result? Hmm. Don't like look at that. This is called appropriate, systematic, and deep attention. Hmm. Now, so through this process, you filter. Now, liken the kind of what I call, um, called it the the attention span which we use with our eyes, primarily particularly when we're just looking at words. I call this the, the, like the pecking of a bird. The attention jumps along a line, and this is very. It's got no depth to it because we're not actually pondering how is this affecting me. It is attention to the object. And it has to keep moving. We're dealing with symbols. It has to keep moving along with the idea when I get to the end of the page, then I'll get the meaning. Having added all these various words up, I'll get the meaning. <laughs> yeah. Now, deep attention, I say it's rather like, like a whale. Yeah. It's a wide attention. You know these massive creatures, the baleen whales, they have these plates of baleen, which is like a filtering device that comes down in their mouth. They let the entire ocean flood into the mouth. <laughs> I guess it floods out somewhere else. And the, the baleen acts as a filter. In the baleen, they, they capture these krill, which are the tiny, tiny creatures they live on. Like the baleen acts like a very fine mesh filter on, on these on these fibrous structures and they capture that just by filtering the ocean. This is like deep attention. It's quite wide, but also what's the meaning of this then? It filters out. And you let the rest of it just flushes through, sight, sound, yeah, 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 yeah. What's the meaning of this? This is hey, this has got a quality of greed in it. This has got a quality of kindness in it. This has got a quality of virtue in it. This has got a quality of aggression in it. You're filtering. Hmm? So through doing that, uh, uh, this this quality, which is perhaps not often so known about as 
as mindfulness, it's the precursor to it. Because it's having done this filtering, what do you think is worth bearing in mind? <laughs> yeah. Having felt, sensed, thought, you know, remember that what's really important to bear in mind in all this, you filter the appropriate topic. Yeah. And so this then becomes the agency for now, you've got it. Set your mind set your mind in that way, in that attitude, in that perspective, with that view, and place that upon breathing in and breathing out. So we're filtering out impatience. We're bringing the sense of patience. We're filtering out the doubt. And saying, just have a little trust in you know? We're filtering out the sense of, I've got to make this work. Just, it does work. You have to just meet it. And so, getting the view straight and then placing that quality of attention on this process. And the body also trains you, like a coach. It teaches you how to be mindful. If you start nodding off, if you start getting too forceful, you lose it. If you start thinking about it, you lose it. <laughs> you lose the vibrant, here and now, shifting, pulsing quality. If you think about it, if you force yourself into it, if you nod off, yeah, you lose it. And it's like a coach. No, you've really got to be on the ball with this one. Uh, and it's the, so it's the mindfulness is rather like surfing a wave, you know, one who surfs, so it doesn't stand rock still on, on its legs lock, it's, it's she or he, flexible, balancing, following the curve, following the, the energy of it, and that's how we train ourselves, or we're encouraged to train ourselves, follow the energy, you can't dominate it, you can't close it down, you can't, you know, tell it what to do, you ride it, and you steady it you know, through your through, and as you do so, your mindfulness becomes increasingly supple and straight and steady, and then you can begin to send these qualities of pure intention into it through that through that through that bond, you could say, and the pure intention here, qualities such as gentleness, kindness, resolution, steadiness feeling negative and grumpy okay you know, just okay just sense that and oh, you know what's needed here you know, a bit of relaxing goodwill getting forceful what's happening here try to just widen take your time breathe in breathe out let it come to you, rest in it, soothe. <coughs> so we're working on both, you know, the you know, the body is teaching the, the meditator. The meditator doesn't teach the body what to do. The body teaches the meditator how to be a little more fluid and flexible and uh, good-hearted. Because that's the only thing that's going to work. Getting upset about it isn't going to work, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it, we can make it work, but it really 
brings around and encourages a purification of our, our intent, where we're coming from. Hmm? And the beauty of that is, this begins to clean out some of these residual, unskillful intentions that have become part of our footprint. You know, moody, or fretful, or you know, feeling inadequate. You can't keep getting stuff going, cleaning out. Just go back to breathing in and breathing out. Forget who you are. Forget who you are. Just be that awareness of breathing in and breathing out. And you don't you don't need to be that person anymore. So this is a you know it really is a beautiful thing to get the fullness of what's going on in this process, and to recognise this is not really half an hour sitting. You know, somebody's saying, well, how long do you have to sit for? We sit for as long as it's good. When it isn't good anymore, and try a bit further, and okay, it's not working anymore, it's time to stand up and take a breath, do some walking. And when it's good, you stay with it. When it's not good, you try this, that, and the other, and then okay, time to shift. Now, you know, but I mean, there's a sort of a rule of thumb here. You don't just, as soon as it goes a little bit off, oh, that's it, I'm quitting. No, you kind of stay with it and see if you can learn something about the difficulty you're experiencing. And so you say you can, you could sort of stretch in yourself or release in yourself or be a bit wider and more generous. With, you know. Is there a way in which you could change yourself to meet this uh, uh, situation you're finding challenging? Yeah. Is it possible? To, you know, could you meet that situation? I can't understand it. I can't push it away. I can't make it go away. But can you meet it? Can you listen to it? Can you breathe into it? Could you meet it at just the energetic level of feeling agitated? And not fight it and not run away from it not shut it down could you breathe into it maybe you find that the difficult stuff actually is where you're making the breakthroughs this is where you make the big shifts because they change you you know you can't operate your normal mindset on them and that's sometimes a bit frustrating, disappointing, because I, I don't know another mindset apart from what I've been using. Well, now it's time to learn one. <laughs> and this is going to teach you it, you know. Hey, it's your coach. You're not, you're not going to get out until you've learned this new angle. I can't do it. Nobody can, you can't do it yet. But you stay with it and you just meet it and see what you don't need to do. You don't need to get over it. You don't need to to uh, have an answer. Meet it with your heart, energetically. Ask yourself, what does this need? Maybe just a little more space. A little more breathing out. Just 
or a little more breathing in, isn't it? A little brightening, steadying, strengthening, isn't it? This one. Mm-hmm. A little bit of turning back from the thought current, from that incessant thought current. Can I, can I return back from that by not being interested in it? Mm-hmm. So we start to find this discovery of skills that we didn't know we had because we hadn't developed them. And we discover territories that we didn't know existed, a territory of silence, territory of, of ease, the territory of rapture and happiness in, in, in oneself, not through adding something that we didn't know existed, because we only ever got there by switching something on. And this one happens by itself. And it's a territory that we can enter into. How does that come around? And so these are things that uh, are there in, in this teaching, in this description. And they're radically transformative. And I also say that, you know, mindfulness of breathing, I think, is a very um, full practice. It's a constant practice. It's a practice that you may, you know, I don't think you can do it in a week. Um, I've been trying for another 40 years or so, <laughs> chewing it over, and it's still showing me a thing or two. Um, but it's a thing you can keep returning to. And sometimes you say, okay, let's just put that aside and try to feel how I walk. Because that same energetic textures are there happening. You don't have to focus on your breathing when you walk. You can do if you wish. But essentially you feel the same fine material realm. When you're walking, you feel the sensations, the ripples. And you feel walking through a space. And you feel yourself opening, steadying. So you can do that. And you're still working on the same substance. You can do mantra, and using the sound, repeating the sound, eventually the sound becomes just an evocation of a rising spirit. It becomes, if you like, the outward sign of an inner quality of heart rising and moving. Same substance. You can send it out with an intention of goodwill. Not just the idea, oh, have a nice day, but actually, kind of really opening your heart to the presence of another uh, without grabbing, without resisting. Feeling the same sense of as the energy that moves between people, both when they're there and even when they're absent. You can still feel this energy moving with warmth, openness, compassion. Yeah. And it's the same substance. The mind substance and the body substance at an energetic level are much the same. So sometimes, you know, I just can't do this stuff, but I could do this. And in doing this, I'm still cultivating those fundamental properties, qualities, skillful, they're called skillful dhammas, skillful qualities, that will serve me forever. It will be my welfare and benefit forever will be for the welfare of others, absolutely. 
will not do harm to others, clearly not, or lessen my greed, absolutely, or calm my rancor and irritation, definitely, or give me confidence instead of doubt, absolutely. And these are this is the primary thing, whether we do it through you know, breathing or walking or practicing loving kindness or chanting. It's the accumulation of skillful qualities is the overall um, uh, uh, cultivation that the Buddha encouraged because they are blameless and in, infallible. Then apparently you're taking this to, to right into your body reflexes and the way you constitute yourself, psychologies. This is a very deep process. And there's always another breath to practice with until there isn't. So let's take a little uh, leg, uh, chance to freshen up a little bit. We'll take a break for five minutes or so.